Hello and welcome to Ditch Finvox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, Jane DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, like, subscribe, let the algorithm know. My guest today is Monica Jasuja, a fintech specialist with experience as diverse as PayPal, MasterCard, and GoTo. Monica spoke with me about what makes payments in Asia so distinct, interesting, and challenging. From regulation to digital banking, to financial inclusion, and all the way to what's gonna to happen to the valuations of these technology companies. Monica Jasuja, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you and your audience. Uh, it's great to have you. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I feel like I'm going to learn a lot uh, by speaking with you today. Um, you have been a, um, a veteran in, in the fintech and payments world. Uh, India, Indonesia, Singapore, USA, you've kind of ticked a lot of boxes in, uh, in, in what's happening. So uh, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit? I know you're current role is it GoTo in Jakarta, but you seem to be moving around a lot. So why don't you sort of explain a little bit about your background uh, and some of the big things that you've worked on, and then we can dive into what's relevant today and what people should be looking for around the corner. Absolutely. Thank you again for the opportunity. I'm a product manager, uh, actually a software engineer turned product manager. Started my uh, career in product management with a mobile solutions company and then moved on to PayPal. Almost ventured into it and stumbled by mistake where I started off with consumer payments and pretty much did most of consumer payments based in three locations where I moved around between Chennai, Singapore and the United States. Worked on most of the consumer payment related front end activities associated with uh, money movement in PayPal before I transitioned uh, uh, into MasterCard in India and South Asia, leading the digital payments division and then the strategic partnerships vertical, which was set up to interact and work with the fintechs before I moved to Tech Mahindra Combiva, uh, which is a leading solution provider for mobile money solutions as in digital banking across the world. And then into GoTo Financial, leading the charter for consumer payments again, this time on the money management side. I'm also a fintech thought leader, um, recognized uh, uh, in terms of how I share content on social media and of course try to keep up on both trends that are happening and what is probably going to happen a little bit further into the future, which we'll be talking about today. Yeah, great. Thank you for that introduction. I think that gives people a pretty good idea of the breadth of, of your activities and experience. Uh, so. When we're looking at, at payments, maybe you can talk with your your current job. So you're you're helping go to with um, the the money management side uh, of that for for GoPay, I, I guess their their in app uh, mobile wallet. Um, what are some of the problems? You know, go to is you know Indonesia's champion. Um, what what are some of the the problems that or the challenges that they needed you to help them figure out? And you know, maybe talk us a little bit about sort of where we're at with these giant super app type companies in terms of uh, of what they're doing with with payments. Uh, so Jim, what is really uh, interesting is that in Southeast Asia, most of um, the uh, the challenges that are coming in the digitization and providing financial services uh, to the larger populace is really not coming in terms of lack of access or lack of intention. So the right technology levers exist. Obviously, the right people are working in the right places to make these technology solutions become accessible to the larger population. 
I think the difference here lies in both the supply side of the problem as well as the demand side, but mostly the demand side. Now, one can address the supply side by being able to use both government levers as well as technology to help with the infrastructure being available. Um, but in terms of the demand, we have to remember that the uh, purchasing parity as well as the consumers in terms of how much they are willing to spend and how much they do actually engage with payments based on their spending power is extremely limited. So uh, in most of these countries, we are trying to address solutions which will help cater both, uh, first of all, um, you know, catering to the top one to 10% of the population and then percolate down the pyramid. That's one way of looking at this. The okay. second is obviously creating the right kind of consumer habits and behaviors to inculcate the change so that users stop using cash and move to digital methods. So I think that yeah. is overriding. Yeah, so we hear a lot about digital economy, and we, you know, we see these incredible companies uh, in whether it's Indonesia or uh, in, in Thailand or Malaysia or India. Um, yet these are cash economies uh, still at heart. Um, so when you're talking about that demand side, you're talking about whether it's merchants or consumers, uh, people who who want to use digital wallets or other forms of interaction rather than cash. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. And consumers and merchants both have a habit which has been built over like centuries, not even years right now. Right. And it's very difficult for them to change or adopt something which is obviously faster, better, perhaps may or may not be cheaper, but is a much better experience for them. They don't take into the convenience part of our pitch. They normally take into how it enables to either move their business or adds value to their life. And I think that's where the problem and solution space lies uh, for these kind of economies as well as uh, both digital as well as well as physical you know it's it consultants or people from this industry uh obviously we're all very bullish on what's happening and financial inclusion is a, is a big uh long-term trend which i think people are happy about yet um the reality is if i may parse through a little bit of what you're saying is that it's a lot harder than it looks and uptake is not always as easy or rosy as perhaps some of these reports might lead us to believe so where where's the reality right now like um it, it, whether it's in indonesia or india or other markets like how optimistic should we be about rapid consumer adoption of of digital means of payments and and other activities around that so I have to be, uh, I'm not going, to, I'm going to say it as it is. Uh, I think most analysts over predicted what was going to happen post COVID and the reality check has already been felt and it's been felt over multiple levers that have been uh, used in the, in the recent last six to eight months in terms of being able to correct that uh, perception as well as the trend. Uh, having said that, I think consumers have tasted blood in, in terms of being able to understand what it is to be on the other side. Uh, a lot of consumers are going to continue to stick to those habits. But what you're seeing uh, in terms of this extra big opportunity layer has to be balanced against what we're going to see on the ground, as well as the reality uh, in terms of purchasing power. I have to come back to this, but uh, the number of consumers who used to use online can now completely get all the services that they wanted online, offline. And and with pretty much literally no convenience fees. I think it's very hard to then be able to provide value for, to them for which they are willing to pay. And if many of these services continue to be free, then it's hard to be able to create a profitable roadmap in terms of both monetization capabilities of this large consumer base, as well as the ability to cross sell products. And I think this is where most people are struggling. And this is a common problem in this part of the world, which doesn't happen anywhere else, which is why it's very difficult for people outside to understand. So the issue, Monica, is that these companies have had to 
provide offers that are not really sustainable just to get people to use these apps and services. And I guess during COVID, there was this huge rush to use them. Uh, but these are, and at the same time, the, the, the end of COVID kind of coincides with the end of the whole VC funded model of buying eyeballs, right? So we're getting a double whammy of people retreating from these just because they don't have to use digital if they don't want to. And I guess uh, for a lot of these digital companies, uh, the the VC money tap is is narrowing. So is that is that kind of where we're at with a lot of these companies? Yes. Uh, in 2020, the focus was all on organic growth, which was happening because it was COVID and everybody was inside. 2021 saw a huge amount of, first of all, infusion of uh, VC funding, as well as uh, the focus on being able to create uh, more and more consumers who were taking to digital. And 2022 has all been about being able to manage these users into creating a sustainable base of both loyal users as well as monthly active. So when you see that the goalpost hasn't changed, but how you define the success of a, and, and therefore your playbook has actually been modified. And exactly to your point, if you're trying to buy consumers because you need to be able to, obviously not, it's not about throwing money only. It's also about being able to tell them about your service you are going to spend on marketing. When you need to reduce that kind of spending and actually focus on being, making these users profitable, which means having them use your services and not just one, but many, that's where the focus area completely changes. And that is what has happened over late 2022 and now, where there is a lot of dry money in the system. However, it's not available for these large kind of uh, companies. It's mostly for early stage or series A and B. Okay. And that marketing spend is only one aspect of how uh, big tech companies would attract users. There's also then financial incentives like cashbacks, and, and these sorts of things. Are people still able to uh, prove a value proposition that they can charge money for rather than giving money for? Uh, absolutely. And I think this is uh, another change that has happened. People, uh, especially consumers who are not, it's not about being savvy about mm -hmm. using these particular products, but being able to see the value in, in, in the product being made available to them versus if it didn't exist in their lives. And I think those are the number of users who are actually going to help propel the digital economy forward. Um, and, and therefore, the loyal, the monthly active and the uh, annual active users have become a metric that VCs are living by. And the focus is, again, to create consumer behavior change, which is propel, uh, which is obviously founded on basic uh, salient principles, first principles, as we call them in product management, but also their ability to want to pay for these services. And I yeah. think that's something that we are uh, seeing across the board. And this is, by the way, not only happening in Southeast Asia, but even in India, where the cashbacks have completely dried up. Yes. What, in your experience, works? Like, what are what makes a digital product and the payment side that goes with it stick? Uh, that is a very, very difficult question. But I will say this, if you're solving a real solution uh, problem, which mm -hmm. people and which is either consumers or businesses need, then they're going to be willing to first of all, use it, then they're willing to be able to pay for it. 
I, I say this because sometimes we are throwing uh, solutions at uh, consumers that they don't even need. And there are a lot of examples that we can find, uh, especially in this part of Asia, where the geographical uh, distribution of both consumers as well as businesses is very, very diverse. And the rule, same rule that applies to the Western world doesn't apply to third world countries or even to the developing world. And that is where I think the change happens. Because if you keep throwing these really amazing solutions, which look really great, but do a very basic job, then nobody is going to uh, be willing to pay for them. And a classic case that comes to my mind is uh, the case for digital banking slash neo banking slash challenger banks versus not. There are plenty of reports which have indicated and, and have done in uh, complete insights based on uh, PNLs that have been reported in financial statements where even the banks that exist in Europe are not able to prove their financial worth. Now, the question is, if you get this model to uh, Asia, Asia already has banking systems. They already have the concept of physical branches and trust being in physical. You can't displace the model overnight when the only value prop is something which is free that they can get because the governments are offering. And we didn't talk about a very important lever, uh, which is very proactive in uh, this part of the world, which is governments. Governments are the main disruptors. They are the ones who are actually pushing not only the agenda to make payments commoditized by pushing the uh, by pushing the rates down, but they are actually creating an environment in which local companies thrive. They are creating an environment in which they push the agenda, saying, "I want the payment. I want the cost of cross-border payments to go down." This is what you need to do in this environment. Then fintechs are merely and majorly providing the ability to uh, obviously showcase the best use cases with the most innovative way of being able to manage them, the best user experience and differentiation. Now, this is again, this almost reverses the paradigm of what fintechs do across the world. And it places the emphasis on government regulation, finding and creating the safeguards and ring, uh, ring, uh, ring rails in which fintechs operate. And this is something which is uh, a little difficult for people outside to understand. Yes. I mean, we've seen different examples of that. Even in Hong Kong, where I'm based, um, most of the fintech advances here have been because the HKMA has, you know, sort of forced the banks to do faster payments or has a licensed virtual banks to come in and compete. Um, and we see when they have kind of wishy-washy standards or, or guardrails, then nothing happens, basically. Absolutely. And now, a, a brilliant case in point is UPI and uh, yeah. even Singapore and the connection that is happening now, it was, you know, used, uh, it was uh, just launched by the PMs of both the countries. I think it's a primary example in this project Nexus, there's the RTP connectivity, which is happening in this part of the world. So there are plenty of things around which are basically indicating that the playbook has suddenly changed. Yeah. The numbers, the, the types of users that big tech companies and the payment side are going after in the region, you said the top sort of 10% of, I guess, people with, with consumer spending power. Um, that to me is um, a very narrow high number and a narrow number in the sense that that sounds like the kind of base that a bank or a traditional incumbent would cater to rather than somebody who's trying to be disruptive and going down the the pyramid of of, of wealth um, and, and finding the underserved. So what is the reality that you see on the ground, whether it's with GoTo or, or in India, in terms of uh, being able to actually do financial inclusion, really expand services and financing opportunities to people that have never used this before or have been excluded or just had a raw deal because they were they didn't have the, the paperwork or the or the wealth to to back up what they wanted to do? 
So, Jim, uh, the primary responsibility for this kind of uh, inclusion actually lies with the government. And the reason I say this is because only they are able to create both policy as well as financial backing and support to be able to serve the underserved. I, I feel that we carry a huge uh, burden of both responsibility and accountability, however, to the people to make sure that financial services are available for everyone, which is in terms of both access as well as ease. Uh, however, the burden cannot be carried by us alone, which is why in this part of the world where there, where there is the maximum number of underbanked after Africa, of course. But if you take each one of the countries in the region, the number of the underbanked is fairly significant. Therefore, at the back of both technology, payment rail innovation, social identity, um, I think there is a con almost like a playbook that gets created where financial service providers work on any or most of these building blocks to be able to take a user almost up the curve. So the user starts off with being exposed to mobile technology uh, solutions. Uh, they are obviously starting off with gaming and video and social media on the smartphone with cheap internet access. Cheap internet can be guaranteed only by the governments working, of course, with technology providers, but in the telco space. Then it, it's followed by the upgrade where they start working with physical money solutions, not sorry, e-money solutions, which is either wallets or others. And then they kind of transition over to getting a bank account and using it actively. Now, this is where I feel that fintechs need to play a part where they're already doing it, but to be able to serve a larger audience and to serve a larger amount of people, you need to be able to also understand that it's not just about using a mobile phone. It's basic digital financial literacy, digital literacy as uh, overall. And then if you build on top of it, the, the ability to spend and there, which is tied directly to their incomes. I think we need to be able to solve that part of the pillar as well. And that's our, that part of the puzzle. How do we increase their spending power? And with the spending power that they have, how do we make them save money? Which is why the digital bank licenses that have been given out in this part of the world, which are supposed to help people not only understand saving, understand investing, but understand how they need to manage their financial lives is so critical. And if I, uh, FinTech is able to help this education, awareness and socialization of what they are trying to build, then I really believe that financial inclusion as a puzzle can be solved with the joint efforts of public and private partnership, which is helping first create regulation policies around what needs to be done and then getting all the right kind of support for the technology guys to build for that. You're a product person. Uh, you know you, you know how to build things and, and design. Um, how good are we job are we doing at financial inclusion? Uh, when I speak with people about this, it always, you know, it always gets mentioned, but I'm not sure it's in the, the hearts of people that are commercial at, uh, you know, in terms of what they're trying to do. Uh, and it often we, we hear, I hear about gamification. Um, and I, I sometimes think that gamification is, um, uh, you know, perhaps it's, it, it's a blind alley because at the end of the day, you know, financial literacy and stuff that you do with the money is it's fundamentally it's it's kind of boring, um, and 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 maybe it should stay that way. Um, maybe I'm just being an old fudgy duddy about that. But what what's your take on on product design? You know, using this technology, reaching people, trying to make it interactive and engaging without making it um, you know like a casino or something inappropriate. So I have to admit uh, here that I think all of us uh, can be held uh, and be considered guilty of actually trying to promote and throwing solutions at consumers which they don't need. Uh, all of us have been guilty of that. And I'm reminded of this very important quote by uh, Steve Blank, who said, get out of the building. 
and he, um, it's a it's a it's a very important process that he actually uh, created for product managers as well as business people instead of trying to create within that you know air conditioned environment where you're trying to create these solutions which are ultra good looking etc you actually go and speak to consumers and customers both consumers i say because they may or may not pay for the product and there are actual customers who may be willing to pay for the product for the end consumer that you are willing to serve and i think it's in that learning that we realize that consumers are looking for very different things including in payments which we are failing to understand so for example the and let's take the example of upi upi was supposed to make these 500 million or so called uh, users um start using um uh digital payments right now we are crossing about 250 to 300 million in india whatsapp was supposed to be that you that big tectonic moment because what uh, whatsapp as a social media application and india as its biggest biggest market would have created this many number of users it's a com- i wouldn't call it a failure but it's a use case and a case study in terms of what didn't work so mm-hmm. my question really is if for the most used application in the world we still don't have upi Uh, being the predominant application that is being used and P2P transfers coming from WhatsApp, then what went wrong? And I think that's exactly what we need to solve for. Consumers aren't looking to use a social media application like they do in China to make transfers. They're using WhatsApp for very other, many other things, including for business, by the way, uh, which is great. So we need to understand what consumers need to uh, are looking for, and financial inclusion per se. The hesitation to go to a bank. the hesitation to open a bank account the hesitation to operate a bank account the ability to not be able to understand financial terms the ability to not be able to read uh, what's written these are unique problems that we are we have to face with the with the last mile delivery of solutions with the population which is beyond big cities and that's what we're trying to address so i think it's a long game it's a consumer habit as well as information and knowledge building um, uh, exercise fintechs cannot do it alone they need the support of the government as well as uh, banks and, and banks also cannot do it alone they need these large consumer bases which are attracted by promotions by cashbacks and they need for them to be able to build so the playbook of financial service providers working so fintechs having a bank license is something which is very very common and big here for yeah. this exact reason what's the lessons uh that w- the industry can learn from the chinese example uh what are the things that that is replicable that are things that can be done elsewhere and maybe what are some aspects of the chinese success story that just don't translate for for some reason people might go down the wrong path if they try to sort of you know rubber you know just cut and paste that uh i have a perfect example because i've been studying this for a while which is a red envelope example i think everybody tried to copy wechat and what they did and uh, it's been a colossal failure everywhere and in fact i believe there's a harvard case study on this as well so the question is we can't blindly copy uh, what is available and applicable in a particular country because there are some local ethos that need to be followed so the 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 concept of physically giving somebody cash especially during religious uh, occasions and festivals is something which is very core and intrinsic to our culture you can't replace it by something digital and i think this is where we go wrong but in the china example i think the one of the major learnings has been the case of the super app or the case of not having a super app and there is plenty of work going on plenty of literature available on how this may or may not succeed in asia but i'm very clear about one thing that when you get a consumer i think it's up to us also to be able to get and cross sell them various products and services in a way that they need based on their 
based on what they are willing to spend on. So, you know, you can't really apply a one rule fits all to consumers. You need to be able to understand their interest. We are not doing such a great job of doing that by analyzing their behaviors. Um, so the super app uh, example, which has already been exported is already in play. I'm sure the results will tell us whether it was a success or a failure but we can't just throw things at consumers. Secondly, in the case of China as well, there was um, there's almost like a 90 to 95% user uh, base, which is already exposed to digital payments. So it became very easy for uh, for builders to build on top of that because the ability to pay with a, physical, uh, with a financial instrument was very easily available. So it almost reversed that. Versus in our case, we have to actually first be able to provide users the ability to pay, to take cash to a digital format. And then we then have this, um, then have them actually take over and start understanding how do you pay for things online, et cetera. So it's a very different ball game uh, that uh, here, and it's a very different problem to solve. And third, but uh, I, that I would like to say is that in China, the banks became active after the two players took off. I think in Asia, we are actually seeing a reverse. Uh, I believe that banks and fintechs play their game together because banks can't do it without fintechs as well. Banks' digital games have been up because they are facing the heat from fintechs. And fintechs have been working actively with banks to be able to not only help the underserved, but also help their own consumers by providing solutions that they need. So I think this is one um, a difference. At the same time, I would say a learning that has come from the China example, where banks have also taken note and everybody is working together collaboratively uh, to help yeah. solve for consumers. If you're running a big uh, tech company and you know, you're, you're trying to raise capital um, and you're calling yourself a super app or you're, you, that's your ambition. Um, you, you're, you know, what valuation do you use? Because uh, if, if you say, well, my valuation is going to be like, you know, Alibaba, then uh, no, it's not, is it? I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen. I mean, in Southeast Asia alone, you've got several competitors all trying to do this, whether it's grab and go to or see, or, you know, the, the banks. So, um, you know, the, this gets back, I guess, to the question of profitability and sustainability of the model. But you know, how how close to reality are we with being able to find, I guess, that right fit of valuation, profitability, sustainability? So, Jim, I think this one uh, definitely needs uh, overall of how we actually evaluate businesses. If we are going to look at a publicly traded firm and then look at their uh, their current performance at the stock market, then it's taken a beating in the last three to five years, especially in the last three years, where the revenue multiples in terms of valuation as well as the PE ratio, et cetera. And again, there's so much literature written on top of this. I personally feel that how high growth companies and how tech companies are actually valued First, when they are when they, when they're just funded and they haven't gone to the public markets, and then after, seems to be something that will evolve over, over a period of time, and maybe at some point we'll we'll come up with what the right metrics of evaluation are. Um, Amazon, for example, has been a case study on how it's not been profitable, but the other services side of the business has actually helped it become one of the largest companies in the world. So. In terms of fintech, I think this is becoming really difficult with uh, the IPO performance uh, across the world, by the way. And uh, it raises a lot of questions because you can see mainstream companies who are IPO would completely take a beating versus other companies which are the same model being valued in and as decacons. So how do you explain this huge gap in valuation versus actual performance? And I think that that's not something that a uh, lot many of us will be able to solve. Yeah. Uh, because the parameters seem different, but 
to your question, I think we need to understand that paying consumers is an extremely important metric. Users which continue to remain active are important. And last but not the least, it's important to also look at the number of transactions that you're able to generate from over a period of time. And these transactions are not the ones that are just growing organically or that you're throwing money at. They should be able to uh, go beyond the top two, three, 10, 15 cities and be able to pervade bigger areas because that's when you really know that you're making a difference. Other than that, it would just be uh, scratching the base um, and the, that, uh, you know, the top of the pyramid and not being able to go down further. So Monica, uh, last question then, wh where do CBDCs and some of these high level things that uh, central banks are looking at, um, you know, the, I guess the, the Web3 crypto side on the private sector, but also driven by central bank digital currencies, are these going to be relevant to fintechs or, or people's lives in the, in the near future? Uh, Jim, that I'm not really clear about uh, right now. And I have my reservations because I think CBDCs, uh, the time will come. Uh, but uh, given what I'm hearing and what I'm reading about based on the G20 uh, finance uh, working group, etc., I truly believe that the governments are trying to look at CBDCs uh, for cross-border payments and trying to see how that might be a valuable and, um, and uh, I would say, technologically viable solution to be able to help uh, with the SDG goal of reducing the cost of cross-border payments. It obviously will be used in the retail use cases as well. The wholesale uh, CBDCs is going to be obviously um, based on the prime primers that we have read is going to be definitely helpful to reduce the cost of operations, the cost of actually printing cash and bring economies overall uh, much respite uh, from that and therefore a lot of cost savings. But personally, I'm conflicted because the digital penetration, at least in terms of uh, scratching the surface, being able to create this movement has already started in many of these countries. The roadmaps have been hastened because of this active anxiety to be able to do something in CBDC. But mm -hmm. I believe it's going to be a trial and error phase until such time that that exact killer use case comes around, or uh, there is a absolute push by the governments to, uh, to focus on a couple of verticals where this use case might be more relevant. But other yeah. than that, at this point in time, there's very little to say how this would work. So we'll see probably more, though, of the sort of tie-ups where, like, uh, UPI being able to export to Singapore or um, within ASEAN, I believe, some of the countries now, you can um, use your, basically, your wallet, your domestic wallet, and through QRs with certain partners, you can go to other ASEAN markets and spend, and it's just straight back into your bank account. Absolutely. I think Project Nexus is also doing that from the Bank of International Settlements. So I actually see that this side of the market uh, has suddenly seen this huge bilateral and then multilateral tie-up that seems to be happening in uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. Uh, and the reason for that is not only because of the cross-border traffic that happens because of travel, tourism, and other, uh, and of course exports, but also because they have local payment systems that that can be tied together. And as this becomes more and more prevalent, I think uh, also because of RTB coming in, I think there's going to be a definite hub where a hub gets established as a regional hub where where money can be exchanged and in real time. I think that would be really exciting. And that, that kind of overcomes the need to have alternate solutions fit into the same um, a genre. And um, what's interesting about that is is it's not just a hub and spoke in and out of Singapore, for example. Yes. This is no. a network, so it's it, there. There isn't a center to it, really. It's just creating a uh, something a bit more organic, uh, nebulous, yes. decentralized. But but perhaps that that uh, removes some of the 
the politics out of these things. It makes it creates more of a an identity for the region. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt about it. And also because these are bilateral and sometimes they're obviously uh, to reduce uh, cost and to create efficiencies, there is a need to be able to have better integrations which are faster and not at a one-to-one level. But the, but most of the push again is coming from the governments to make sure that this happens. And also the payment rails that are available, I think those are going to be exciting times because the real-time payment connectivity will just make sure that you're able to even offer it to businesses. And again, cross-border trade with real-time payment connectivity for business use cases will be extremely exciting. Great. Well, a lot to look forward to in the coming year. Monica Jasuja, thank you so much for joining me at Digpin Vox. Thank you so much for uh, getting me on the show. Thank you.